Well, good morning, Mafra Community Church. It's a privilege again to bring a message from God's Word this morning. I, I look forward to the day when we can do this face-to-face -face again. Uh, let's just take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, we just ask this morning that you speak to us through your Word. We, as we look at the resurrection, help us to be encouraged through your Word. And we pray that you would speak to us as the Good Shepherd, and may we hear your voice and follow. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, how do you think the world will end? And do you have hope? Are you hopeful? Do you feel anxious? Scared? Optimistic? Pessimistic? How do you feel about the end of the world? A survey was conducted in America in February asking people what they thought the end of the world would be like and how they thought the world would end. And the top three responses were these. Number one, a global pandemic. Number two, climate change. And number three, a nuclear war. What about you? How do you think the world will end? Today's Bible passage gives us certain hope and a clear understanding of what will happen in the future. It's a certain hope for every believer who trusts in the Lord Jesus. He is coming again and it will be a wonderful day for all believers. And so, may God's passage this morning uh, encourage us to live by faith. Hopefully you've read the passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18. This is what I'll be speaking on today. Uh, Nathan and I have been speaking through 1 Thessalonians, alternating back and forth. And we're continuing that this morning, this letter that Paul wrote to that ancient Greek city in Thessalonica. Uh, in ancient Greece. So just, I guess, to set the scene uh, briefly. So, Paul and his companions have spent a very short time with the Thessalonians, maybe even a few weeks, maybe, maybe a month or so. Uh, and they've taught them many things about God, many things about Jesus, how to live this new life being Christians, or followers of Jesus. And then... Uh, Paul and his companions were, were stripped away from the Thessalonians. They had to leave quickly and decisively because they were being threatened by people in the city. And um, so in chapter 3, uh, verse 9, we saw that Timothy had visited Thessalonica and he brought back a, an encouraging report. Um, and Paul was like this, this proud dad. He was overjoyed because the Christians were walking in the faith. They were steadfast in hope. Um, their faith was real. They'd turned from idols and they'd, they'd been worshipping the true and living God. However, then in chapter 3 verse 10, we read that Timothy's report seemed to reveal some uh, areas where they needed to... Um, some areas of concern in this fledgling, 
fledgling little church. There were areas where they were still lacking in their faith. And uh, isn't it true in any church that there will be issues as long as there are people, as long as there are sinners there, saved by grace, there will be issues. And so in chapter 4 and 5, Paul addresses some of these issues, uh, moral issues to start with. Nathan spoke last time about some of these. Um, sexual immorality was one of them. Uh, growing in the love, in love for one another was a concern Paul had, and also that they would work with their hands. And now Paul addresses another issue, this time a theological issue, the issue of what happens to those who have died. Isn't Jesus coming back? What's going to happen to our loved ones who have passed away? Probably since Paul's departure, some of the believers had died. And now what, what happens to them? Does God care about them? This is what Paul's trying to address here. Um, Paul has alluded to this throughout the, 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 the letter already. He's alluded to the hope of, of Jesus' return. We see in, in chapter 1 verse 3 where he says, uh, Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith um, and labour of love and steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Again in chapter 2, verse 19, and he says, For what is our joy or our crown or joy of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? And then over in chapter 3, verse 13, he says, So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. There's an emphasis here on, on the hope of Jesus' return. Um, however, just before we get to the hope, I just want to spend a moment on the, the other side of the coin, the judgment, which Paul mentions also a couple of times in this letter. See, when Jesus returns, it's going to be to bring judgment. Jesus talked about the sheep and the goats. He talked about heaven and hell. He made it very clear that the day of his return will be a terrible day for those who have not taken refuge in him. It will be the final day, the final judgment. And all those who have not responded to the shepherd's voice will face God's righteous wrath and judgment. Paul mentions this wrath to come in chapter 1 verse 10. And he said, uh, we wait for the Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And then in chapter 5, verse 9, where he says that he has not destined us for wrath. Friends, you and I deserve that wrath. And if you've not called out to the Lord Jesus... To save you, then you will experience that wrath. So come to Him while you have time. And if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus as your Saviour, then you've been delivered from that wrath. And, uh, and, and everything that we have to look forward to uh, in Jesus' return 
is hopeful, is good, is wonderful. And this is the focus of this passage that we're looking at. It's primarily written to believers as an encouragement. And that's going to be our focus this morning. In your newsletter, you've got an outline, and we'll be following through that. I want to talk briefly about uh, grieving, and then there's the three aspects of Christ's resurrection that I've, um, sorry, of Christ's return that I've broken this up into. The certainty of the resurrection, the specifics of the resurrection, and the stimulus. So let's have a look in verse 13, where it says, we're told we, we should not grieve like those who don't have hope. How do people in our culture grieve? Well, as I was thinking about this, I thought that um, people tend to grieve in one of two ways, I think. One of two unhelpful ways. Firstly, it can lead to uh, in some people, a, a, a long-lasting feeling of bitterness or anger, um, even even um, even guilt, uh, to the point where, where sometimes where people uh, they carry this burden throughout their life that cripples them, and it, it, it cripples every aspect of their life. Or perhaps um, another common uh, grief grieving reaction in our culture is is just to, to cast off the pain, just to move on. Uh, it's too painful, it's too painful to deal with. Let's just, let's just have another drink, uh, let's just get back to work, um, just suppress that, suppress the questions that come up uh, from a grieving heart that, that seeks uh, eternity, that God has placed eternity in our hearts, let's just push that aside. And um, I, I don't think either of these ways of grieving is particularly helpful. And it's not the way that we should grieve as Christians. Um, but I do think that there is still a Christian grieving response. And we should be, as Christians, the best at grieving. Death, death is a horrible thing. It's a curse. Uh, it, it means separation from loved ones. It's very hard. Death is hard. It's tough. And, and some deaths are particularly difficult, aren't they? You have a, a life cut short, or a, a traumatic death, or a death with, with a, a long, uh, long period of suffering. How did Jesus see death? Let's think about, for a moment, Jesus' dear friend Lazarus, who died. We are reading this in Bible study just the other night. In John chapter 11, 35, we have the shortest verse in the Bible there. But it's, it's also, um, uh, it also carries a lot of weight. That verse, Jesus wept. If Jesus wept for his friend Lazarus, then surely we should also weep uh, for loved ones who have passed away. To grieve is to feel pain. It's to be, to be emotionally alive. And, um, and in case you think it was just Jesus' humanness that caused him to grieve, not his godness, then go back to Noah's day. The Lord in Noah's day saw that every inclination of the human heart was 
evil continually and, quote, it grieved him to his heart. See, God feels pain. God grieves. He's sovereign and he knows everything. He knows what's going to happen, but he still grieves. In Romans 12:15, it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Friends, if um, we've all lost loved ones. We've all lost loved ones who knew the Lord, hopefully. And we will lose loved ones in the future. We should grieve. We should feel pain. But it should never cripple us. As Christians, our grief does not have the final word. The resurrection is certain. And this is the second point, and this should give us hope. How can we know the resurrection will happen? Most people would laugh and scoff at the idea today. De dead people don't come back to life. Well, the answer is in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's how we can be certain. Those two things, Jesus' death and his resurrection. His death is his motivation for the resurrection, and his resurrection is the means for our resurrection. Let me explain. So, first the motivation. Jesus died. Think about this. Jesus existed long before the world was created. He was living in heaven. He, everything was perfect. He created the world. The world was created through Him. He left perfect heaven to take on the form of a feeble, feeble human being. And then He died a horrible death, even though He was innocent. What? Why? Why would Jesus do that? Why would He pay such a high price and then not claim the goods, so to speak. It'd be like, it'd be like ordering a brand new car and then not bothering to go and pick it up from the dealer. After you've paid for it. Look at one, let's look at 1 Corinthians 6.20. It says there, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now, Paul's talking there about using our body to please God, but it also implies that, that Jesus has actually purchased our bodies. Our bodies have been bought for Him at the price of His blood. And so, will He then not make sure that He comes to claim His prize, that for which He has, he has died? So, that's, that's Jesus' death. Jesus' death is the motivation for His returning and, and, uh, and resurrecting us as His people. Oops, sorry. So then the means. Because Jesus rose again in verse 14. He died and rose again. Just a few verses back in, in that passage in 1 Corinthians, in, in verse 14, Paul says, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by His power. 
Jesus obviously has the means, he has the power, the ability to raise me and you because he's already been raised himself. And if you have any doubts that Jesus came back to life, look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Four historical, reliable witnesses. Uh, quite a number of people saw Jesus, the risen Jesus. Just a few quickly to name. We've got Mary Magdalene, the other women at the tomb, Cleopas and the other disciples on the road to Emmaus, the ten disciples, Thomas and the other apostles, seven apostles, eleven apostles, the apostles on the Mount of Olives before this ascension. Five hundred people at one time, and Paul says in Corinthians. And many of those were still alive when he was writing that. And then finally, Paul himself, the, the, the man who's writing this account for us, or this letter for us in Thessalonians. He saw the risen Christ on the road to Damascus in Acts 9. We read that. Before this, Paul had a, a respectable job. He was, his name was Saul. He had a respectable job of persecuting the believers. And after his encounter with the risen Christ, he was willing to suffer so much, so much hardship and persecution for the name of Christ. Now, would he have endured those things for a lie? Would he have endured all that hardship, given up his life uh, as a respected Pharisee, and, and taken on that life of beatings, being thrown out of, uh, uh, throwing into prisons and out of synagogues, and um, so much hardship, had he not seen the risen Lord face to face? I think not. The certainty of the resurrection for all believers is tied to this biblical fact, this historical fact that Jesus died and rose again. And so we can be sure and certain of the resurrection. So let's now look at the specifics of the resurrection. There's a specific sequence of events that are associated with Jesus' return. Um, let's first note in verse 15 here that Paul received this information from the Lord. Probably direct revelation from the Lord. Um, Paul had met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. Um, and so he had seen the risen Jesus and, and, and Jesus had talked to him in person and shared things with him. Um, the sequence of these events is consistent with what is written in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, um, but actually goes a little bit further. It, it talks more specifically about the sequence of events. There are some things here that aren't in the Gospels, in the order of things, and particularly in the way the, um, the dead and, and those who are alive, how they are, when they are resurrected. So let's look at this sequence. Um, it's pretty simple. Uh, I, I see there's, uh, there's basically three steps, three main steps. Firstly, Jesus will come down from heaven. Verse 16, we see that. Um, just as in Acts 1.11 says that he will come down in the same way that he went up to heaven. He went up, people saw him, 
He will come down the same way. Uh, and Jesus has been in heaven at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us during this time, um, since for 2,000 years since he rose again. Um, he's been interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. He's been preparing a place for us. He's coming back down. Step two, the dead in Christ will rise first. In verse 16 again, um, the, the dead in Christ are those who have uh, accepted Jesus' offer of salvation, his sacrifice as a payment for their sin. They accepted that while they were alive. From God's perspective, they're his chosen ones, his elect. But these dead in Christ who are going to be raised, they're, they're also those who have fallen asleep from verse 14. Um, how can they be coming down with Jesus, but also being raised up from the dead? Well, as I understand it, the, the believers have been with Jesus in heaven since they left their mortal bodies behind. Remember the thief on the cross? Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus is bringing each of them back to be reunited with their body. Not, a, not, not their old mortal body, but a new immortal body. So that's step two. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then the third step, those who are alive will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, in verse 17. This is what's often called the rapture. Uh, these two will receive a new body. I know many of you are looking forward to that. And this will be an instant transformation. Let's have a look at 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 55. This is a kind of a parallel um, uh, a passage. It speaks of the same event, um, but the emphasis here is, is more on the, those who are alive rather than in Thessalonians where the emphasis is on, on the dead who arise, the, the dead who are raised. I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? What a wonderful day that will be. So, that's the sequence of events. No believer will be left out. And I imagine that will all happen very quickly. Which brings us to the sights 
and sounds of Jesus' return. I, I remember a, a grade 6 camp, uh, school camp in Ballarat. I was impressed by the Eureka, um, the sound and light show at Sovereign Hill. With the, the fire coming out of the windows of the hotel and the sound of gunshots. Well, Jesus' return is going to be a sound and light show like no other. In verse 16, we start there with the voice of the archangel. And this is probably the chief of the angels, but in Matthew 25, 31, we're told that all his angels will come with him. What a sight. All the angels. How many thousands of angels does God have? They're all going to come with him to witness this fantastic event. And then we have the trumpet call and the clouds. Trumpet calls and, calls and clouds come up a bit in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. Let's just briefly look at the Old Testament. In Exodus 19, 16 to 17. This is three days after God has rescued the Israelites from Egypt. And they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. And it says this, Exodus 19, 16 to 17. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. The, the, the trumpet was a, a symbol of a, an announcement, something was happening, and the cloud, symbols of God's presence with his people. And at the resurrection, we will be with the Lord forever. The, the difference for the Israelites is the cloud hid them from God. They couldn't see his glory. They weren't able to see his glory through the cloud. When Jesus comes back again, every eye will see him. Revelation 1, 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. While the clouds are symbols of God's presence, we won't be in the clouds forever. We'll be taken up to the clouds, but then Revelation 21 speaks of the new heavens and the new earth, the dwelling place of God with man. There'll be no more tears, no more death, no mourning, no crying, no pain, for the former things have passed away. And the last sight I want to mention, last sight and sound is the sovereign Lord himself. His voice. In verse 16, we read there, says the cry of command. Jesus is in command. He's in control. Like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. When they mocked him and they beat him, and they nailed him to a cross, 
he was humiliated. But he's coming back to be the lion of Judah. He's coming back with the roar of a lion, calling his children, calling his sheep. Jesus said in John 5, 28-29, An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Those who ignore the only way of salvation will hear the terrifying voice of the Lord Jesus, God's Son who they rejected. Those, those who belong to Jesus will hear the beautiful and familiar sound of Jesus, the Good Shepherd, once again calling them to himself. So what? How should we live in light of Jesus' imminent return? This is point four, the stimulus of the resurrection. Stimulus is a funny word to use, I know, but I wanted it to start with an S word so that we had the, the, the certainty, the specifics, and the stimulus. Uh, stimulus is defined as something that arouses activity or energy in someone, a, a spur or incentive. The idea with the government's stimulus package is that they, they, they splash money out to you so that you'll go and buy something that you don't need in order to sustain a, a flailing economy. Um, in verse 18, Paul is writing to encourage the believers. This is, this is a stimulating encouragement, spurring us on to do something. Uh, I remember a few years ago, Steve Messer uh, broke this word encourage down for us. Encourage. To give courage to. It's not a warm and fuzzy you know, pat on the back saying, well done, done a great job. It's a word that emboldens and inspires us. I love looking at Webster's Dictionary, the first dictionary, um, 1828, Noah Webster's Dictionary. And um, you can access it online, you can just Google it, search for 1828 Webster. And I think it's better than any modern dictionary. The word encourage, uh, it, it, it says in there the de definition, uh, to give courage to, to give or increase confidence of success, to inspire with courage, spirit or strength of mind, to embolden, to animate, to incite, to inspirit. And the best thing about the 1828 dictionary is that um, at, at it often comes with a, an example or a word from Scripture. And so for the word encourage, the example that Noah Webster used comes from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 3.28, which says this, But charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him. Why? Because he's done a good job? Oh, you've done a good job, Joshua. Well done. Pat on the back. No. Encourage him because... It says, 
For he shall go over at the head of his people, and he shall put them in the possession of the land that you shall see. He was going off to war. He needed courage. And Paul writes Thessalonians to a people who were facing persecution and suffering. And friends, the, the study of eschatology, the, that's just a big word for the end times, it should never leave the believer to fear or to inactivity or to speculation. It should stimulate us to godly living and, and to bold faith. In chapter 5, um, we, we, uh, we'll go into more of what living in light of, uh, of Jesus' return looks like. And Nathan will bring that to us in a couple of weeks. Um, but I just want to read to you, uh, to finish, uh, a couple of things. So, uh, Martin Isles from the Australian Christian Lobby, he said the other day, uh, talking about the book of Revelation and the end times. And this is my paraphrase. He said, The book of Revelation was not written to promote speculation or to make people fearful about what might come in the future. The point is not to make us live on tenderhooks and speculation. John wrote Revelation to churches who were living with terrible fears and, uh, and sufferings and who were facing martyrdom. He wrote it to strengthen and encourage them. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is the Lord and the King. What happens will be according to His will, in His good time, and none of it will happen without the care of His people. When we see things in our world, or in our own lives, that cause us to fear, we need to look to that certain end point. We don't know everything that will happen in between. When we hear of, of China rising up, or coronavirus causing lots of deaths around the world, or um, you know, any rumours of war, famine, um, pestilence, we need to cling to the certain hope of the future. We can speculate all sorts of things in this life, but we know one event is sure, and that is Jesus' return and the resurrection. In verse 17, it says, We will always be with the Lord. This is a great encouragement that we have. In chapter 5, verse 10, Paul puts it this way, Whether we are awake or asleep, we live with Him. And in 2 Corinthians 5.8, he says, To be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. In other words, there is no time that we're separated from the Lord Jesus. He's with us now. He'll be with us then. There's no disadvantage for loved ones who have already passed away knowing the Lord. They are with Him. It's far better for them. They've been with Him since they passed away. And we who are left, we will go through trouble. Jesus warned us of that. But what did he say? He said, take heart, for I have overcome the world. And I will be with you always to the end of the age. 
your friends may think you've gone bonkers when you, you tell them that you're, you're waiting for the Lord Jesus to come riding on a cloud. But in that moment when He appears, in that moment, and for all eternity, it will be worth it. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this word. Thank you for your encouragement from your word. Lord, please uh, embolden us to live faith, faithfully for you in this life. We don't know what life holds, but you do, and you are with us. And we do know what the future holds. There will be a day the Lord comes back and takes us to be with Him. Lord, if anyone listening to this uh, does not know You and the voice of the Lord Jesus as a shepherd, then just pray that You will open their eyes and their hearts and call them to You. Lord, for us who have heard your voice, please continue to call us and to draw us uh, to be to, to closer to, with you, for a closer walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.